time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War Ray, episode 253. Yeah, it is. How's it going? Uh, this is uh, Operation Ajax, part something. Who knows? Uh, I, I was going good, Ray. How are you? Oh, buddy? I'm, 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 I'm. What do you want to say officially on air? Love your fellow man. Um. Mm. That, that's pretty much it. Don't don't lose the Christmas spirit that you had a week ago. That, that's all I'm saying. Just just you know, be good to each other, people. Be good to each other. D back, D back, D back the hell out of your life. Exactly, exactly. I've been reading uh, for the first time in decades Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Ah, oh. you ever read that? I saw the movie. No, no, I, I, uh, no. <laughs> I saw Richard Harris. Did he die in the end? <laughs> yeah, I don't, spoilers, but yes, he did. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, it should, in fact, I think, be mandatory reading for everybody every day. It should be in, in the legal system. I like that. You have to read a page of Marcus Aurelius every day. Yeah. It is, yeah, probably one of the best philosophy books i think ever written totally aligns well not totally nearly totally aligns because mm-hmm. he does talk about having free will from time to time but outside of that totally aligns with my three illusion stuff and um it's just yeah full of calm peaceful wisdom right uh which would have been great coming from anybody let alone the emperor yes um from 161 yes. to 181 i think when he wrote these, he was on campaign, sitting down every day, just oh, wow. writing some notes hey. to himself yeah. about yeah. how to be happy, yeah. basically. Yeah. I'm in the woods. I'm cold. There's Germans all around me. But putting that aside, let's examine the human condition. Good for him. Good for him. You know who could have used this? Oh, the British during the next two episodes because calm, um, what's the word? Uh, consistent, rational behavior will go amiss. Uh, in the next two episodes. So if, if you ever wondered, give me a good definition or example of dumb fuckery, we're about to give you that because they do not, cannot see any other position other than their own. Well, before we get into mm-hmm. that, while I was preparing these notes, I was listening to the music of Muhammad Reza Shaharian. Right. The rapper? Very famous. No, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> very famous Iranian singer who died in 2020. Oh. But, um, you know, I... I, I, I went into ChatGPT and I said, hey, I'm writing notes on 20th century Iranian history. What music ah. can you recommend that I listen to to get me in the mood? And recommended this guy, among some others, and terrific stuff. Re- highly recommended. Muhammad Reza Shaharian. Right. Uh, S-H-A-J-A-R-I-A-N. Nice, bl- sort of chill vibe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Iranian slash Persian music. Uh, totally dig it. I could see that. Um, yeah. And speaking of the British, Chrissy and I sat down to watch this movie the other day. Right. Um, There's a series, I think, All the Light We Cannot See or something. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Based on a book that she really enjoyed. Right. And it's set in uh, 
France in World War Two, later stage of the World War Two, evil Nazis terrorizing nice French people. Sure. And I was just, um, it bugs me, you know, knowing as much as we know about the French right. and the British. Right. You see these World War II films and it's always the good, honest, hardworking uh, British or French, simple, humble folk. Sincere. And the evil yeah. Nazis right. or the evil Russians. When you and I both know, the, the British and the French. <laughs> Biggest dicks. Would, Biggest cunts <laughs> at this time and afterwards. Yes. Like, really? Yes. The French yeah. in then Indochina? They're like, oh, we are support Frenchmen. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Oh, fuck you, Indochinese. We're going to go and rape and pillage your country after World War II. Oh, and the British. Yes. You know, all the shit that they're going on with around the world after this. Um, I just, like, I, I just have no tolerance right. for the... The like the biased, Spend, fluffy yeah. Hollywood version of the British and the French, right? Uh, during World War II. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. let me let's talk about Iran. So the last time we finished this show, which was a year, which was last year. Right. Happy New Year, by the way, Ray. And to you. Happy twenty twenty four. Hopefully, we make it through. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Year year eleven of our working. Uh, relationship. Wow, we're in the second decade of working together. The second decade. The second decade. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. Uh, one of us and is I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I did an episode of the Bullshit Filter last week oh, yeah. with uh, J. David Markham. You, you couldn't be bothered turning up. <laughs> I'll let you know when you're wrong. Go ahead. Go ahead. Half the feedback I've got so far as, oh, thank God you had somebody who can actually <laughs> argue with you instead of Ray. It just I doesn't see. seem to put in any effort. Yeah, I doubt that. And the other half of the comments right. have been, oh, my God, Markham is such a windbag. Never have him on again. Where's he just Ray? talks for the sake of talking Where's and Ray? doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be happy to know, uh, you probably haven't listened to it, but you'll be happy to know that he came with no notes and no preparation either. So. Right. At least I have cards. You know. You know, the little little tiny cards, you know. But the point is, I had some <laughs> I had something. I was semi prepared. Anyway. But it, you just have yeah. I love you written on your eyelids <laughs> like uh students in Indiana uh, Jones. Indiana Jones and, and you just close your eyes at me every now and again. And hey, I've been doing it for eleven years and it, it works. works. It yeah, works. yeah, it gets you it works, it works, never fails. <laughs> the last time on this here podcast, um M.M., yeah. M&M, Mohammed Mossadegh, one of the greatest stunts of all time. Right. Uh, he's in the the Majlis, the parliament of Iran. Uh, this is uh, early 1951. One of his enemies, conservative guy, a British uh, tool, <laughs> says, oh, if, you know, if you're so smart, why don't you become prime minister then? <laughs> and Mossadegh goes, yeah, all right, right, let's do it. Fair enough. And they're like, oh, what, what, what? And they did like a double take. That wasn't in my notes. So yeah, yeah. he becomes prime minister on the 20th of April, 1951. And, and I want to start by pointing out that this is happening smack bang in the middle of the Korean War. Yes. Which we have talked about forever and a day uh, in recent times. Right. MacArthur was relieved as the United Nations commander a couple of weeks earlier, 11th of April. General Ridgway succeeded him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Chinese and North Korean spring offensive began on the 28th 
of April, stopping just north of Seoul, right. about a week before Mossadegh becomes prime minister. So Americans and the the free world, quote unquote, <laughs> right, are obsessed with communism yes. at this point in yes. time when Mossadegh becomes prime minister of Iran. And, you know, just to remind people, the 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 fear that they had in the West mm-hmm. was this idea that communism might succeed right. in becoming an alternative to capitalism, oh. which would threaten the rich people in the West and the politicians that they owned. Right. So it had to be stopped at all costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit like Napoleon, hundred and something years earlier, if the French Revolution that Napoleon sort of rescued, right, if it had succeeded, and France had gone on and and um, you know been successful mm-hmm. as a non-monarchical country, right, the threat that that posed to the rest of the monarchies was existential. They were like, well, if, if it succeeds there, everyone's going to want some. All of our people are going to want some freedom from exactly. the monarchy and the nobility as well. We can't have That's that. That's intolerable. Yeah. Same thing with communism in the 20th century to the rich elite. Yeah. The rich elite in Europe in the late 18th, early 19th century were the nobility and the church and the, the monarchs, the kings and queens. They couldn't allow a threat anywhere yes. in Europe to their dominance. The same thing was true in the West in the early 20th century with socialism or communism. If it became successful, right, stabilized anywhere in the world, then their fear was the people in their own countries might go, oh, really, economic uh, equality? Huh. We will have some of that. Thanks very much. <laughs> or just, Could not be allowed right. to succeed. Had to be crushed at all costs right. well, for, and demonized at all costs. Exactly. And, and we're going to see a lot of that in these next two shows. You know what? Forget equality for a second. Just halfway not raping the people economically, I think, would appeal uh, to a lot of countries. But you're absolutely right. This cannot work. They, they, you know, the, the, uh, the Iranians cannot take their oil. Did I just say their oil? I apologize. They cannot take their oil from the British. And so, yeah, this 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 cannot stand. So America is obsessed with um, supposedly a Moscow-controlled war in Korea, and the British are equally focused on, you know, their, their cash cow. There's just no other way to put it. And the idea that these brownies are standing up to them, this cannot stand. And as we'll see over the course of the next couple of episodes, the British were already convincing themselves that Mossadegh's plan to nationalize the oil industry was all being led from Moscow. Yes. Wow. It was all a <laughs> secret commie plot. Because, Everybody as knows. they well knew, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, brown people can't think for themselves. No. No. They have to, they look- have to be yeah. led by somebody who's uh, white and delights them. Exactly. Now, As we know, because we've talked about this, um, in the late 40s, early 50s, President Truman approved the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the course of the next few years, he's sort of gearing up the US to sort of fight communism, contain communism, stem the tide of freedom-loving peoples everywhere. (laughs) Um, the original, the vague original mandate 
of the CIA was to carry out functions and duties related to intelligence oh. affecting the national security. Oh. But within a year, that was <laughs> expanded to include sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition, evacuation measures, subversion. Right. And assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas and refugee liberation movements and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Wow. So phase one, we're going to gather information. Phase two, we're going to fight back. Phase three for the CIA, we're going to take the gloves off. There are no rules. Whatever it takes, we will be willing and happily. Do and it, and, it, and we've covered this before. It was almost for some of them a religious uh, thing because they are fighting against the, the godless communists. So everybody's plate is full right now. And the last thing we need is is tension in the Middle East. But that's exactly what's happening, and it's over oil. So it just draws all the Cold War Cold War fears together. And in January 1950, the National Security Council prepared NSC 68. Oh yeah which we've talked about, which basically was the plan that we're going to confront communist movements, not only in regions of vital security interest, but anywhere they appeared, anywhere in the world, because, it concluded, the assault on free institutions is worldwide now and in the context of the present polarisation of power, a defeat of free institutions anywhere is a defeat Everywhere. I love that. Stan and Barry were on their game that day. I also love the fact that the National Security Council can give itself this uh, blank check, these complete supreme powers, whereas if a cop pulls me over and I give him the sovereign citizen speech, I get pistol whipped and then thrown into jail. But no, I'm glad these guys could give themselves the ability to be the policemen of the world. Now, you're white, right? Cop would just go, yeah, you're right, eh? 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 Aren't you? Yeah. White, white power. Having a barbecue this weekend, officer, thought you'd like to bring over the yeah. wife and kids. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I like the defeat of free institutions. I mean, communism was uh, people fighting for their freedom. Right. In the from wrong way. what they perceive yeah. to be- It's all relative. You know, corrupt institutions. Yes. But according to the NSC, it's the defeat of free institutions by people wanting freedom. Yes. The freedom fighting people (laughs) overthrowing free institutions is a defeat of freedom. And and I believe in this so much, so much. I am. Pretty sure if we try harder, we engage Barry and Stan, we can get the word freedom. Into a Squeeze it in than, the Yeah, one more. Squeeze it in. <laughs> Give me one more time. Uh, I'm willing to kill you. Uh, that's how important this is to the CIA. We will kill whoever, whatever it takes. But anyway, so the point is they've got their uh, they've got their marching orders, and now it seems between Korea and maybe Iran, there might be something to do and fear. So we'll have to see how this plays out. But the interesting thing about Iran at this point in time yes. is whilst. They they hated the British. They most of them hated the Russians. Yes, some yeah. like the Russians, some like the British. But generally speaking, in the in the country, Britain and Russia, as we've as we've talked about over the episodes, have been interfering in their country for centuries, right, or over a century anyway. The United States yeah. was very well liked by many, if not most, Iranians at this point, mid twentieth century. Yeah, they were the sort of the new kid on the block. Most Iranians thought they were pretty cool. <laughs> They uh, had a, a fairly good track record, right. both as a country yes. in not interfering. 
but also individuals. There was a there was a number of guys that had gone Americans that had gone to Iran and, and had a big impact on the country. Yeah, in the late nineteenth, earlier twentieth century. Do you read about any of those guys, like Howard Baskerville? I did not, um, but that's mostly because I can't read. Um, what did you find out about him? You couldn't find a YouTube video. <laughs> Someone needs to get out there and put out more YouTube videos. That's all I'm saying. Howard Baskerville was a young American school teacher who uh, went to Iran to teach at the Presbyterian Mission School in Tabriz and joy, like, joined his students during the Constitutional Revolution mm-hmm. um, in like 1909. And I read up on him. He, like, apparently he said to his students when this thing was going on, what can I do to help? And they said, pick up a gun and join us. And he was like, okay, then I'll do it. Yeah. And he got killed during the Constitutional Revolution. He was only 24. Wow. But he was called the American Lafayette because he was assisting them. He was a foreigner but was assisting them in their – their revolution it was very, very famous. In fact, Reza Aslan, mm-hmm. you know Reza Aslan. He's like, um, I don't know, I think he's on MSNBC or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Comment, American commentator. He's written a couple, a bunch of books, including one on Jesus. Right. Um, that was a bit dodgy from a historical perspective, but anyway, mm-hmm. you know, I, I read an article by him saying that when he grew up in Iran, he and his family left uh, in '79 when the revolution happened. But right. when he grew up. He remembers learning about Howard Baskerville at school, like even in the 70s. Wow. Probably not so much now, but Still. even in the 70s, he was depicted as a, a great American who, you know, contributed to their country, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Of course, in that time, America was basically running Iran, so that's not, you know, I'm talking about in the 70s when right. they were running the, the the puppet government under the Shah. So there was probably a bit of American propaganda going on over there. But anyway, he was he was quite famous. There was another guy called Samuel Jordan who even went earlier. He arrived in Tehran in 1898. Wow. To work at a place called Al-Bors College, which was a Presbyterian um, high school. And then I think, yeah, it was a secondary school. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first modern secondary schools in Iran. He ended up being like the, the president of the college for 40 odd years. Wow. And, um, you know, ended up becoming quite famous. I think there was a, um, there's a statue of him and there was a street named after him, Mm -hmm. um, until the revolution happened, but he was, he was very famous. The school itself, this Presbyterian school, Al Bors college was set up by another American, James Bassett, who was a chaplain in the United States Volunteer Army during the Civil War. Right. And then he went to Iran to, um, I don't know, set up a, a school yeah. where they were, you know, you know, basically chipping in, helping out, modernizing education in Iran. Right. So there was a lot of guys that had really contributed, uh, a lot of Americans, well, a few. Yeah. Not a lot. A few Americans that had really contributed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and had impressed people, and they were they were sort of heroes, yeah. American heroes in Iran. You know, in America in those days, from people that have been oppressed by colonial powers, you know, outside of maybe some Latin American countries, mm-hmm. you know, the Philippines, we know yeah. uh, Filipinos didn't like the Americans Not around King. 1899 when right. yeah. he went and killed a million of them yeah. Yeah. to bring give them their freedom. <laughs> um, 
and places like Cuba, the, yeah. the, the countries around Latin America and the, the Asia Pacific where you had uh, given them their freedom from Spain by oppressing them, yes. um, probably not so friendly towards the Americans. But right. in places like Iran where they hadn't experienced that side of American colonialism, right. well, they saw America as yeah. the good guys. Not only that, and you're absolutely right with everything you just said, and it didn't hurt that the Americans didn't go around trying to converting, you know, converting people. So they're there, they're doing hospitals, they're doing schools, they have nothing to do with the oil, they're fighting in their wars against the Shahs, and, so, and they're not converting. So generally speaking, the Iranians going, oh, America's good blokes. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. So this that's I guess that's the point. By the mid 20th century in the mid 20th century, right. Americans generally very well liked yes. by Iranians. Because they didn't know any better. It's like when people meet me and they say, I've I've heard good things about you, and I say, just wait to get to know me. And I'm like, it won't take long. Anyway, yeah. No. <laughs> So there was there's, there was a quote from someone, oh, an American envoy who was in Iran said, the Persians of all classes still have unbounded confidence in America. And I think that's a part of the problem that we're about to see. Um, the Iranians were certainly more than willing to stand up to the British, but there is the fear if do the British bring in their superior military, you know, what are what the what would the Iranians do? Would they ask America for help? Or God forbid, would they ask the Soviet Union for help? Who knows? But the point is the Americans, I mean, the Iranians almost see the Americans either kind of on their side or very neutral. And that's just pissing off the British left and right because the British and the Americans came together. They helped to form the United Nations. They helped to form NATO. And so why would these two not be hand in glove? But on this issue, we're going to see a lot of Americans who are not only anti-communist, they're anti-colonialism, um, colonialists. And this is exactly what the British are still trying to perpetuate. And they're just butting heads um, over this question of oil. Yeah, and so another American who gets involved around this time is a guy called George McGee. George. Uh, yeah. Liberal He Texas. was the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern, South Asian, and African Affairs at the time, 38 yeah. years old. He's a geologist who had studied at Oxford. Yeah. The AIOC, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, had actually offered him a job at one point in Iran. Right. He turned him down, started his own oil company. <laughs> Ooh, and no. soon discovered a, a major oil field at a place called Lake Charles in Louisiana. Right. Made a fortune out of that, which enabled him to go and work for the Truman administration without pay. And I, and I read an interview with this guy later mm. in life. Right. Where he talked about the reason he started an oil company was his plan from a very young age mm. was to get as rich as possible as quickly as possible so he could go into public service and not have to worry about money. Wow. Things have slightly changed uh, since his time. Uh, but, there, but there were a lot of people. I, yeah. In fact, most of the people that worked for FDR were $1 a year men. They were obviously very fabulously wealthy. They were white. They took advantage of the capitalist society that they lived in, millionaires. Uh, but mm. they did, when the country needed them, come forward with their expertise and work for a dollar. Here's another person of that same kind of cut of cloth. Uh, but he's running, against, mm. he's running up against the British. Yeah. Um, and the British didn't trust him mm. because they thought he was a stooge for American oil interests. Oh, get them out and get America in. So the, the British either are paranoid or they're judging everybody by their own actions. 
I'll leave that up to you, dear listener. And they're probably right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. here's the thing yeah. with all of this. Like, uh, you know, when you read the books um, about this stuff, uh, the Americans, yeah, yes, it, look, it, 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 here's the thing I always come up against with, with, with um, the oversimplification of history. Right. Multiple things can be true at the same time. Yes. Yes. In the middle of the 20th century, did the Americans uh, want to uh, get rid of colonialism? Yes. Mm-hmm. But why did they want to get rid of colonialism? It wasn't, it was partly, you know, this general idea of, you know, self-determination of the peoples, although we know, although we know that's not true because they prevented the self-determination of peoples like yeah. you know the 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 Vietnamese in Indochina yes. etc yes uh, and the Koreans in North Korea there was no self-determination no we're going to determine right uh, your future you don't get to determine it because we know best um but you know really the the real reason i believe anyway mm-hmm. the us wanted d- to dismantle colonialism was they wanted to dismantle the trading blocks that the colonial powers had, you know, manufactured, engineered over centuries. Yeah. So the U.S. could get in on that action. They wanted to get in on the Commonwealth trading block. They wanted to get in on the French block. They wanted to get in on the Russian block. They wanted to. They didn't. They they didn't want any doors closed to them. They wanted the ability to trade with any country in the world. We've talked about this on the show many times over the years, but the U.S. economy had struggled in the late 19th and early 20th century. It was producing a lot of stuff. It had sort of maxed out its domestic markets. They needed to be able to sell stuff internationally, uh, and they couldn't because a lot of these markets were locked down by foreign trading blocks. They didn't have access, or if they did have access, there were – you know, very high tariffs that they had to pay to get their goods and services in there or to buy natural materials out. So there was self-interest in all of this on behalf of the Americans. It's a bit like the Marshall Plan, right? right, Yeah. Did the Marshall Plan help a lot of people in in Western Europe after World War II? Yes. Was it charity on behalf of the Americans? No. No. It was all self-interest. It was all about, yeah, building a marketplace for their own goods and services, which – probably would not have existed if they didn't go in there and invest to build the market so they could sell their products and services and get natural resources back out of it. So two things can be true at the same time. And usually are. Yes, you can want to end colonialism, but you can also be doing it purely out of self-interest, not out of, you know, general love of mankind, which is how it's sometimes, you know, portrayed. If if I could real quick, because we've talked about the the forces of history a lot on these various shows. And so between FDR's policies during the 1930s and early 1940s, and then World War II, by the time World War II is over with the American economy, our ability to produce goods is on steroids, it's on cocaine, it's on meth, it's on all of them mixed together. And so there's not enough Americans in their own country to buy their goods. They clearly have to sell to everyone else. And the last thing Washington wants is another Great Depression, or even just a depression in their country. So you're right, you're right, they're going to um, seek markets wherever and however they can, which of course, dovetails nicely into the Cold War. We become the world's policemen. Uh, We appointed ourselves. thank you very much. And, And which is why we've been 
interfering in countries ever since then because we can no longer just take care of ourselves. We need all of you people to buy our goods and we will back that up with our military. Thank you very much. And it, and it comes back, I think it comes back to what John Mearsheimer calls offensive realism. Like mm. this idea, I've heard, I've been listening, he was recently on Lex Friedman's show, I've been watching that interview. It's really, really good and I highly recommend it. You know, Mearsheimer's theory about how countries, how states behave is quite simple. If you're a state, you want to be as powerful as possible. You want to be the most powerful state in your region because that is how you best protect yourself against being attacked by other states in your region Mm -hmm. is to be the most powerful state. Uh, To be the most powerful state, you need to have the most successful economy, you need to have the biggest military, and you need to... Uh, get all of the other states that you can in that region uh, subservient to you. They need to be working for you, with you, towing the line. If any of them appear to be uh, going off the script, uh, uh, positioning themselves as a potential future threat to you, you need to crush them. Yes. And, you know, that's it's just common sense. That's how you survive as a state is to – become the most powerful and crush anyone who looks like they're going to be competition to you. Right. Uh, that's that's the kind of behavior you should expect from a, a large state that wants to be the most powerful, the most dominant state. It's a matter of survival. So it's not, you know, as we've often said, it's not America's bad and, you know, Markham's always accusing me of blaming America. It's not well, America just does what it feels like it has to do in order to be the most powerful nation in the world, not just in their region right. these days. It was originally in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, Monroe Doctrine, et cetera, was the most powerful player in the region. And then after World War II, the most powerful player in the world. And you try and maintain that as long as possible in any way that you need to. So, you know, no one's going to come up and be a potential threat to you right. if you can avoid it. Yeah, Sometimes it's unavoidable, like in China's case. Um, they tried as much as they could. But it's like it's just... It's just practicalities, right? That's yeah. what you do. Everybody, every everybody's guilty of what you what you said. Uh, everybody's looking out for themselves, and it is human nature. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's human nature, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, getting back to George McGee, the liberal Texan, and you normally don't hear those two words together in the same sentence next to each other. Who is, uh, you know, like you said, he's working for the State Department. He had met. Mohammed Reza Shah, uh, when he came to America asking for Truman for uh, for uh, either money and or military aid because he wanted to supposedly, you know, be able to protect his own country. He didn't get very far, but at least uh, McGee got to see him a couple of times. And um, McGee, so so McGee at least has, has he's, he understands the Shah. So McGee, again, trying to do his job, he goes to the officials of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and he says, you know what? I've been looking around, I've been not snooping around, I've just been looking around, and you guys are making some serious coin year in and year out. This is pretty freaking amazing. However, I have noticed tension between you and the Iranians. That's very unfortunate. Here's an idea. Why don't you share just just a little bit more of that sweet, sweet profit that you're making every year and maybe make some of this drama go away. As you can imagine, the British cannot, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. This is literally, I think, to a degree uh, that I feel comfortable stating the fact, the British cannot see 
any other worldview. This is how they've been doing it with the natives for hundreds of years. Why would it not continue? They certainly can't do all the things it needs to get the oil out of the ground and get it to the markets. They need the British. The British, even though it's Iranian oil, they are needed and the British are needed and they should be compensated for that. So so even though George McGee is starting to whisper, do something, check this, you know, be more moderate, whatever. He sees whisper, you can see the writing on the walls. They are not they literally do not want to hear it from him or from anyone else. Yeah, McGee asked the State Department's petroleum expert, Richard Funkhauser. <laughs> I don't know if he's related to Marty Funkhauser from Kirby Enthusiasm, <laughs> to prepare a report right, on Anglo-Iranian. Yeah, yeah. The report concluded that Anglo-Iranian was exceptionally profitable yeah. and that it sold its oil for between 10 and 30 times the cost of producing it. That's good. Right? And that its arrogance had made it genuine. Well, yes, it is good if you're AIOC. <laughs> had made it genuinely hated in Iran. Yes, so McGee keeps pushing the AIOC to share more of their profits with Iran. Mm. He even went to London to try and convince them in person. Yeah. But, of course, they just basically told him to fuck off and stay out of it. None of your business. Yeah. Could I just... Our re- business, just stay out of the whole thing. Absolutely. This is between me and them and Iran. I love this. So he, so it's September 1950, like you said. He goes to Iran. Uh, he goes to London. He's like, again, dudes, I can... I can you know, the writing's on the wall. They said, not only will we not train Iranians for, for more supervisory positions, we're not going to open up our books. And then uh, Sir William Fraser, who's uh, the chairman, put it best. He goes, if we give them one more penny, the company goes broke. So how in the fuck do you go from we sell this oil 30 times what it costs to get us out of the ground, get out of the ground to if we give the Iranians one more penny, everything will be it, it will all just go to the it will just be trashed. That is some of the Englishman's mentality in this issue. Which is insane. Yeah. Yeah, they won't even have a sensible conversation yeah. with the Americans well, they, about this. And yet they, can't. they expect complete support from the Americans yes, absolutely. for their case. Here. Absolutely. I, and I, I think you make a very good point. The British know that this is like what the um, the American gun lobby does. You can't agree to anything because that's the toe in the door, which, again, is, a, uh, I think, a ridiculous argument. But the British think we cannot even contemplate negotiating because where will it stop? It'll be a slippery slope. And we kind of like things the way they are now. So in February 1951, McGee summoned all of the American ambassadors in the Middle East to a meeting in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And one of the main agenda items was to talk about the friction that had developed between the United States and Britain over the question of Iran and what that meant for their relationship, particularly in the Middle East. Right. And all of these diplomats basically concluded that the the militancy of the British and of the AIOC was, quote, one of the greatest political liabilities affecting the United States slash United Kingdom interests in the Middle East. Their reactionary and outmoded policies, they yeah. wrote in yeah. a secret memorandum, right, was creating a dangerously explosive situation and constituted a handicap in the control of communism in Iran. Mm. So, again, getting back to what we were saying earlier in the episode, right. the Americans at this point 
are starting to see everything in terms of communism yes. and the, the fight against communism. Yes. And one of the reasons that they're pushing the British to moderate their position or modify their position on the sharing of the profits with Iran mm-hmm. is because they they have this view that if the Iranians get angry enough, yes, they might turn to the Soviet Union for support in this and it's the, the country is going to fall to the communists like China had already done and like they thought uh, you know was going to happen in Korea right. at this stage too was it was on the the verge of falling to the communists yeah. they're going to lose another country to communism yeah. which means effectively if they lose Iran to communism it means they're going to join the Soviet Union's trading block so all of that oil yes and all those markets are removed from the Western trading block altogether yeah. and end up in the Soviet trading block, which is going to be a blow because they they produced a lot of oil at this stage, one of the largest producers of oil in the world. And right. the the West wanted that oil. They didn't want the Soviets to have that oil. Exactly. They wanted that oil. Sweet, so, sweet you know. oil. If I could real quick, and you make a good point because – for the Americans, it's it's quickly becoming about communism, and like you said, if we if the British push these people too far, they may be so desperate as to turn to the communists, and that that thought is going to stick with Truman. So Truman might be he, again; it might sound good when he says to um, um, Mossadegh, "Look, just talk, just talk, just try to work something out." But what he's really trying to do is keep Iran from communism. Was that going to happen? Who knows? But the point is, that's the Americans' fear. That's what's driving them. And that's what's forcing them to keep going to the British and going, you know, you really should compromise. And that's going to keep upsetting the British. So it just goes round and round and round. And what starts it all is America's fear of communism spreading. So when the Marjlis decided to nationalise their oil interests, Ernie Bevan was still the foreign minister in the UK and he apparently said at one point, what argument can I advance against anyone claiming the right to nationalise the resources of their country? We're doing the same thing here with our power in the shape of coal, electricity, railways, transport and steel. Now, I looked into this a little bit. Right. So... um, this was going on like the basically the post-war consensus yeah in the united kingdom certainly the labor government's agenda in the united kingdom after world war 2 right was that they needed to nationalize uh, most of their major industries mm-hmm. to take control of it yeah. and and direct it towards the government's agenda right couldn't leave it in the hands of private interests yeah, it, do, it doesn't benefit the people if you just let a couple of shareholders benefit. But no, yeah. they literally know it's going to make a ton of money. We can use that money to help take care of our people. We've been through hell. And as far as I know, they still have rationing of food. So what are they trying to do? Yeah. They're literally trying to take care of their own people. Does that sound familiar? Anyway. <laughs> so the coal industry was nationalized in 1947. Right. It was like a a primary energy source, mm-hmm. obviously, at the time. Yeah. The rail industry was nationalised in 1948, creating British railways. Mm-hmm. The steel industry was nationalised in 1951. Wow. Got denationalised and then renationalised <laughs> in the 1960s. They tried. Experiment. The Bank of England was nationalised in 1946, which gave the government control over monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, civil aviation 
was nationalised and consolidated, which created BOAC, British Overseas Airways Corporation. Right. Flew into Miami Beach, BOAC. Didn't get to bed last night. And British European Airways, BEA. The electricity industry was nationalised in 1948. The gas industry was nationalised in 1949. And the telecommunications industry, which was part of the post office, was nationalised. Uh, but that had started to happen earlier in the 20th century. Right. So, you know, yeah. everyone's criticising the communists. Yes. <laughs> for centralising and controlling... Their industries. Shame on that. In the early 20th century. That's um, You know, they're, they're taking away private industry and nationalising it. Yeah. Agriculture, in the case of uh, the, the, the Russians um, and Cuba and places like that, yeah. for exactly the same reasons. Yeah. People are poor. Government has an agenda. We need to control it. We need yeah. to keep the money moving into the places we want to move. When the Soviets do it, bad. <laughs> bad. When Iran tries to do it. Bad. Even worse. Yes. When the British are doing it, oh, that's fine because yeah, uh, they're white people. It's policy. It's good policy when we right. do it's it. It's a white too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. The, the, like, again, the, just the hypocrisy, yes. uh, do as I say, not as I do right. mentality of the West in this period is astounding. Really, yeah. it's and, and, and credit to Ernie Bevan. We know that he retired for health reasons and then died, but right, uh, right. you know, if, you know, fucking props to him for calling it yeah. out, saying, "Hey, we're doing it. How can I? How can I possibly <laughs> say nationalisation is bad when we're when we're nationalising our industries left, right, and centre? Like exactly. uh, that's just yeah. hypocritical. Yeah. But the guy who took over from him was like, "Don't care." Yeah. We're doing it anyway. Yeah, fuck them. And, and if I could go back to McGee for a second. So after the Majlis uh, votes to nationalize the oil, like we covered at the end of the last episode, McGee tries again. He flies to Tehran on March 17th. He meets with Ambassador Shepard, who blamed this entire cock-up on the Americans by saying, you bastards, you yank bastards, if you wouldn't split the oil, the money that you get with um, Saudi Arabia, with the Aramco company, the American or, or Arabian American oil company, then we wouldn't have to ha- hear all this shit because you're leading by example. We hate that. So again, the British ambassadors blaming the Americans because we're treating these other people decently. I guess is the way to go. But the point is, uh, McGee is not having any of this. He goes, look, I told you, son of a bitch, is this a long time ago. Two, this is a disaster of your own making. You're too rigid. You're reacting too slow. It's a new situation in Iran, and you need to try something new. He might as well have been talking to the crickets. So McGee meets with the Shah, who he finds depressed and afraid that he's also going to get assassinated. Yeah. Remember his prime minister before Mossadegh, uh, Ramzara, was assassinated. Yes. He thinks they're coming for him as well. Yes. The British then sent Sir Oliver Franks. Here we go. Who had been McGee's tutor in morals at Oxford to the United States to present Britain's case to Washington. He, um, Franks, served as the British ambassador to the United States from 1948 to 1952 mm-hmm. and it was sort of played a big part in, in you know, building their relationship or, or rebuilding right. their relationship after World War II. So he taught McGee so they had- morals at Oxford. Yes. Oh, this should be interesting. Yes. Should, let's see if the student oh, yes. has become the master. 
<laughs> so they had meetings in Washington for like nine days. I mean, the British want America's support. Yeah. Yeah. Unilateral support Back for what me, they're bitch. doing in Iran. Yeah. But is not willing to take any input from the Americans on how things are played out here. Can I get your opinion on something? I'm sure you've read some of the uh, the statements that the British made when they were talking to the Americans. One, they're trying to point out how this is vital for British interests. I get that. But as I was going through and reading that, it was like there was some dog whistle phrases. Like if, if the oil goes to the people, then this is a victory for the Russians. Uh, this could affect our rearmament program and we're your partners. You know, I think they expected the, I think they were trying to use America's current paranoia about communism uh, to get the Americans on their side. And this is just my take on it. I, w- I wanted to know what you thought, but uh, you can't blame them for trying, but the two sides don't get any closer by the end of those nine days. Yeah. He uh, also says that if they did a deal with the Iranians, it would, or if they lose, I guess the oil, it's going to cost the United Kingdom 100 million pounds per annum in their balance of payments. Right. Um, he also said that Iran had no solid grievances against either Britain or the oil company. Sure, sure. And Britain was concerned about losing a prime strategic necessity. Yeah. Now, I want to I want to put this into some context because, mm-hmm. as we've talked about, part of FDR's discussions with Churchill back in 1941 before the U.S. got holus-bolus involved in World War II, part of the discussions, the Atlantic Charter meetings, um, in order for the U.S. to continue to support the United Kingdom Mm -hmm. during World War II, uh, financially and and then later militarily, uh, and supply of weapons and that kind of stuff, was the agreement that the, the British would dismantle the Commonwealth trading bloc. Right. Churchill was furious, not on my watch, but he really (laughs) had to agree to it because he needed Churchill, uh, uh, FDR support. Um, So here we are, a few years or five years, six years after World War II. uh, The the UK is dismantling the British Empire, Mm -hmm. partly because they agreed to with the United States, partly because they have to because they can't afford to run it anymore. They're, they, 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 you know, they're getting out of Israel slash Palestine, getting out of Palestine and allowing Israel to be created there when the, the Zionists take it by force. Right. They're getting pushed out of India. They're getting pushed out of their African colonies. They're getting pushed out of all of their colonial. Um, oh yeah. Possession. Outposts. Yeah. Yeah. Which means they're going to lose all of the money. Yes, it's going to save the money because they that. don't need to have a base there, but they're going to lose all the money. They're, they're going to try and do deals. Right. They're going to try and determine who the incoming governments are in those countries, oh. and they're going to try and negotiate trade deals in return for you know military support and economic support mm-hmm. and you know media support or whatever it is, as all you know, uh, uh, exiting colonial powers do. They try and make sure that who you're leaving behind is going to be friendly to your interests. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. Yeah. But the idea that they're also going to lose Iran, which technically isn't part of the empire, they've just stitched up all of these um, 
you know, uh, uh, deals with right. them, uh, economic. It might as well be a colony. And if they're going to lose that as well, then, yeah. It's just another economic blow. Now, the reason I think he keeps talking about their, their, their uh, economic situation and how it's going to impact that he's, uh, is, is because they owed money to the United States as well. Right. Now, I've recently been reading uh, Super Imperialism by Michael Hudson, uh-huh. which is a terrific book. The, the, this edition came out 20 years ago, but it's still relevant. He talks a lot about um, how the U.S. invented what he calls super imperialism, right. which is better than imperialism. It's super imperialism. Ooh. It's economic imperialism. Right. Um, and but one of the points he makes is that after World War One and World War Two, the United States forced the countries they loaned money to to pay back their war loans, mm-hmm. which was unusual. Yes. Historically, right in the 19th century, in the you know even before that, if you formed an alliance to fight in a war and your contribution to that war was largely economic, right? You provided loans, you know, money, funding, weapons, whatever. If your side won the war, you tended to forgive those loans or restructure them in some way that they, you know, there was some sort of quid pro quo because the idea was, you know, you were contributing to the war effort uh, for your side to win. Right, in your And your side won. I mean, if your side loses, then you get nothing. Right. And if your side wins, then, you know, you won and there's going to be trade deals or there's going to be some sort of benefit in that for you. Yes, uh, but the United States took a different approach after World War One and World War Two. They were like, "Fuck you! Where's my money? <laughs> not our continent, not our fucking problem. Pay me the money, right? Bitch, better have they my money." They were intransigent, right? On it, right? Um, the UK was fucked after World War Two, broke, losing its empire. Yes, the US were like, "Fuck you! Not our problem. Pay me the money." Right. Um. Uh, you know, if you look at the Napoleonic Wars or the Latin American Wars of Independence or the Greek War of Independence even, uh, you know, if loans were either forgiven or were restructured afterwards, mm-hmm. even like, the, you know, we saw after World War One what happened with Germany and the Versailles Treaty and all that kind of stuff, how that fucked, right. you know, in- insisting on repayment of reparations in that case, not war loans, had a very detrimental effect. They tried to learn from that in some ways after World War II in terms of reparations, but in terms of war loans, the U.S. Oh, was like, no, nah, yeah, still pay yeah. me the fucking money. Pay me. And I think Britain finally did pay it back like 10 years ago. You know, they finally yes. paid back their war Semi- loans. recently, from. yeah. Yeah. But the point that Michael Hudson makes out is when the U.S. was bleeding cash mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War and it, it, couldn't, it, it couldn't afford to redeem the U.S. dollar for gold, right? 1971, Nixon just went, you know what, <laughs> fuck it, no more gold. <laughs> going off the gold standard. No, no. Now we're just going to print money. And Not a problem you know, now. Michael Hudson's, yeah. M- Michael Hudson's whole theory, and we should actually do some episodes on this because it's fascinating. Right. You know, the, the premise is that because the U.S. came out of the Bretton Woods Conference with the agreement of the world's foreign ministers, uh, well, the, you know, the Western world's foreign ministers, that 
after the war, the US dollar would become the reserve currency because it was the only country that had the economic stability after World War II to provide a reserve currency. Right. The US has basically been getting free money mm. to fight its global wars and build its domestic economy ever since. Yeah. Because every country ends up with shit tons of US dollars right. in, the, in its reserve bank because everyone's trading with the US. Um, they have to do something with that money. They need to invest it. And where do they invest it? A large part of it is buying US Treasury bonds, which ah. is how the US raises money to pay for its wars and its domestic economy. Right. So the US buys stuff from a country mm-hmm. with US dollars. Those US dollars end up going to the federal, the reserve bank of that country, who then use it to loan to the United States to buy a 10-year treasury bond. Right. So the U.S. then gets its own money back, (laughs) spends it on building a war. Right. When that bond is due in 10 years, they just create another bond. To cover. That country buys that bond because they need to invest all the U.S. dollars they've been getting in (laughs) for the last 10 years. Right. And the U.S. just goes and fights more wars and buys more businesses and takes over the world. And it's just been doing that since yeah. World War II, just recycling its treasury bonds, building up a massive trade deficit, a right. massive amount of debt, federal debt in the country, yeah. like $33 trillion of debt or something the U.S. has now. Jesus. But the theory is that, they're, you know, they're quietly they're like, well, it doesn't matter because yeah. foreign countries are going to keep loaning us free money. Right. It's essentially free. By free, I mean the interest rates are very low because yeah. U.S. Treasury bonds are deemed to be very stable. U.S. Mm. economy is deemed to be very stable. But it's a it's a perpetual sort of um, positive spiral because yeah. the economy is deemed to be stable because they've got a lot of money to spend and wars to fight where they can crush their enemies. But they get that money because people keep giving them money and then they take that free money <laughs> They never have to pay it back because they just borrow money to pay it back yeah. from the same people they have to pay it back to. <laughs> it's good to be the and king. And it's the most brilliant Ponzi scheme. The U.S. is one big Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and they've been yeah. getting away with it because they had no competition. Like, after World War II, they had no competition, as we know. I mean, the Soviet Union, you know, it was marginally, potentially future uh, future threat, but no, not they markets. were able to crush it. Yeah. Yeah. They were able to crush it. You see, you see Americans think that uh, the American economy and America is so successful because of Americans are great and because Jesus loves them and because capitalism is awesome. Yes. <clears throat> really? Right. It's because because they 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 were very, very far away from where World War One and World War II happened. Right. They coasted through both of those with very little involvement and none of the damage. Cities weren't flattened. Right. You know, they didn't lose 20 million of their people, etc. Yeah. So they came out of it with the only surviving really major economy in the world and then were able to use that yeah. to basically create this massive Ponzi scheme where they've had free money flowing in ever since, which they can spend to buy everything and crush everything. Right. Um, I don't, and it's, it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I, I'm still waiting for the Anything. downside. Anyway, um, yeah. So, so the Americans and the British. So my, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
So my point was just they were, you know, they were like, "Fuck you, pay us the money." The British right. were broke, yeah. So Iran was like one of the few things that they thought they were going to be able to, they might be able to keep. That's why they're fighting so hard yeah, for the Iranian oil it. revenues. They, they need million? it. What did you and say? And they're like, "Hey, million? by the way, yeah, yeah, you want us to pay pay back our war loans to you? We need the money. Yeah, you need us to have that money, or we can't pay back the war loans." But the US was still, eh. Fuck you, yeah. where's my money? Yeah. They wanted open markets, just not for communists. They didn't want communists right. to have open markets. Well, they didn't want communists. They, they yeah. wanted to have open markets <laughs> for themselves. Yeah. So so the <clears throat> Americans and the British get together. Like you said, nine-day conference. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't solve anything. In fact, I think it probably creates more, more tension. But then May Day, May 1st, 1951, Mohammad Reza Shah signs into law the law that revokes the Anglo-Iranians' concession and establishes the National Iranian Oil Company in its stead. But like you just said, London desperately needs this. They're not giving up with a fight. In fact, the next day, Britain demands that the law be suspended. It's not. A couple of days later on May 6th, uh, Mossadegh, Moss the boss, submits his cabinet to the Majlis. I think... It was approved right there and then on the spot, and on that day, he officially becomes the prime minister. So this guy has been waiting decades to do this. He's got a lot of experience. He's been around the world. He knows what's what, and now he finally gets his turn in the captain's chair. We'll have to wait and see what happens, and which, of course, means that the British has to play the least favorite game of any empire. What the fuck happens now? And who the fuck told brown people they could (laughs) make their own decisions? I what hate, is the world coming to? I hate that. White people being told to fuck <laughs> off by brown people? That's unnatural. Sorry, I can't believe I just said that. All right, we'll be back next time on The Muppet Show. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.